Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm so excited to be speaking with Karen Russell, whose new story collection, Orange World, is out now. Karen won the 2012 and the 2018 National Magazine Award for Fiction, and her first novel, Swamplandia, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She has received a MacArthur Fellowship and a Guggenheim Fellowship, the 5 Under 35 Prize from the National Book Foundation, the New York Public Library Young Lions Award, the Bard Fiction Prize, and is a former fellow of the Kalman Center and the American Academy in Berlin. She currently holds the Endowed Chair at Texas State University's MFA program and lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband and son. Orange World is radiant with imagination and emotion in a style that Karen Russell fans will recognize. Narratives unfold in surreal hotspots of the real world, where monsters and fantasy play as big a role as humans. One of my favorite stories, The Gondoliers, is about a family of echolocating sisters who travel a climate-changed-ravaged underwater version of Florida. The title story, Orange World, tracks the desperation of a new mother after she makes a deal with a literal devil to ensure the health of her newborn son. As always in Karen's fiction, fantastical settings make room for real emotional resonance. The stories of Orange World offer unconventional lenses through which to consider exceedingly human emotions like regret, fear, and grief. Part of what I love about Karen's work is the way the reader is immediately at home in even the most outlandish story. Here, we talk about how she makes that happen. We also talk about our relationship with nature and altering it in fiction, as well as shaking up your voice and developing what she calls an occult sensibility of how to shape your work. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation in which we discuss what makes a satisfying ending by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. There was something so consoling to me in discovering, you know, it was like the church of me too. What I really was most curious about as I was reading was to talk about first what kind of reader you were as a kid. Because I just love like everything that, I don't know, you just, you have this imagination that just feels like so much was composted to create it. And I just really <laughs> would love to like start there. Oh, that's such a nice verb. Um, I, it is sort of like that. You know, I, I think it's funny. Some of the writers that I love now, um, Chris Adrian and Victor Laval and, um, you know, Kelly Link, Carmen Marie Machado, I really think we must have had similar reading histories because you can sort of pick up on, you know, the echoes of, of, of books that I just, I, I have a hunch we all must have loved as weird kids. And I had this deal with my mom where I could get, you know, Cujo or Ray Bradbury or Octavia Butler, you know, a book from like the science fiction fantasy section. If I got a book from the classic section, and I think that's where I started to, you know, develop a suspicion that these, these lines could feel kind of arbitrary, you know, because I would read Jane Eyre and there would be, you know, that's a deeply haunted book <laughs> and a terrifying book in many ways. Um, and, and I would read, you know, you know, I read, I remember the last unicorn was a favorite book of mine and it, it's a, you know, it's a fantasy classic and the sentences are, um, incredible. I mean, it's, it's some of the best prose that you could read, um, at any age. So I, I do sort of think that I, um, end up drawing in this kaleidoscopic way on, on some pretty diverse <laughs> sources now as an adult. And that for sure started when I was a kid and it was just sort of making a, um, 
pinballing around the library, you know, um, and not really paying that much attention to the way that genre had been partitioned from, you know, literature. Yeah. And that idea of just, you know, reading without any thought to like what you should be reading or what's like, you know, what's like a claim, you know, not that a kid is thinking about critical exactly. reviews, but like, oh, this is on the reading I mean, list. I read that it. a little bit, right? Because I sort of feel like then you, you know, as an adult, time is like such a premium. Yeah. Time is at such a premium that you end up feeling um, less willing to just sort of use your fingers as a dowsing rod to find your next book. I mean, I love if like if a cover had like a purple dragon on it, I'd be like, I'll check this out, you know? Right. right. <laughs> Yeah, I think about this all the time when I'm in bookstores that like, I have to really police myself about just gravitating toward names I recognize. Like, it, like very rarely yeah. do I pick up and discover a new book. And I, and I remember like the pleasure of um, kind of the discard shelf at a hotel or a oh, motel or something. Yeah, totally. You know? Just they're just sort of right like the, the kind of finders keepers pleasure of like, <laughs> um, yeah, a paperback on a table. I don't know. I, I miss that a lot because I feel like I don't really. I'm I'm more a little more risk averse too, probably, mm. and I really heavily on friends for recommendations. And um, but it, but back in the day, you know, I um I loved Frank Herbert's Dune. I think that was a book I read mm. in eighth grade that I I just didn't know a book could contain that much. Um, Try to think of some others. My mom gave me The Heart of the Lonely Hunter by Carson oh, McCullers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, I still think deep in the weave of my brain, that's kind of my er novel, you know? Mm, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, and I've seen interviews too with you where you, you always, you've mentioned Flannery O'Connor a few times and that, that feels like that, that Southern, I mean, I know Southern Gothic is like such a thing to, you know, it's because it's such an idea now, but like that, you know, it, there is that flavor, I think yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I came to her a little bit later. I think that was my first undergraduate mm. English class. Um, but even even before Flannery, in high school, I read Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. Mm. And mm -hmm. and that is a... Have you read this? No, I haven't. No. It, I, I will feel so solid <laughs> if you... <laughs> about this use of your time if you go in and read <laughs> Geek Love. I'm okay. Like, it, is, it is like the most scaldingly original novel... Um, you know, I think the title wrong foots people because mm. you sort of think, oh, it sounds like a, a mild romance between two lovelorn nerds. And it's about these, you know, carnival geeks who bite the heads off chicken and this family of, of freaks, you know, who work at a carnival. It's it's really incredible. Um, and I think um, my first novel, Swamp Landio, was a, a huge debt to that book. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's terrifying also. Um, but... <laughs> But it's just like deeply sorrowful and human at its core, and, and the language is um, unbelievable. I love that you mentioned that, and and also Carmen Maria Machado, who's been on the show, and I keep I kept thinking about her when I was reading your collection too, because you're both moving in these surreal spaces at a moment that just feels more and more surreal. And so I was curious yeah. if like that's sort of shifting the way that you think about like, do you feel like the approach has to be a little different? Do you have to go out a little further, you know? Yeah. Um, it's funny, you know, I'm not sure how um, how conscious I always am when I, I think especially starting a draft. Sure. And if I have um, too, co too conscious of an agenda for a story, it just usually doesn't work. You yeah. know what I mean? So, mm -hmm, for sure. But I think just, I, I can really source 
in this particular book, so much of what we've lived through in the last, you know, half decade <laughs> together. I mean, I really do see the way that without intentionally saying I'm going to respond to, you know, these overlapping crises mm-hmm. uh, of you know, kind of climate change and administration that, you know, is, it seems out and out war on women's rights and human rights, you yeah. know, I mean, uh, you know, so without sort of sitting down and saying that these stories are, are going to be op-eds basically still, I think just, just because you're a person processing these same sort of apocalyptic anxieties <laughs> in your body, um, of course it, it informs the fiction that you make. And I've it's been really interesting. I feel like so much of the fiction, you know, and, and, and cinema, of the last few years has a kind of dire note mm-hmm. resounding inside it. And one of the things I did sort of think about while I was writing this book, there's a, there are a couple of really beautiful books on utopias right now. Mm. And, it, and it made me sort of aware of how easy it is for the imagination to list in a very dark direction. Mm. And I just wanted to try to find a way to seed some plausible hope inside the book, you know, <laughs> Without you know, not nothing tricky or sentimental, but some sense that actually there might be some new way of relating to nature, right, or some new way of relating to one another, right. So I hope that made it in there too. But I, I do kind of think, in many ways, right now, the art that's being produced in in 2019 is responding pretty directly to all kinds of threats that <laughs> that we're um, aware of, kind of at every moment. It's hard not to be, you know, I was thinking about that. This is kind of a new thing where I'll get off a plane, you know, I'm traveling now and I find that I brace myself before I turn the phone back on, mm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like my muscles will clench a little bit just in anticipation of a push notification that, you know, there's yeah. nothing that seems out of bounds. It could be like right half the country caught on fire while you were in the sky for three hours. Like everything. Right. Everything's on the table. Sort of possible yeah. in a frightened way. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, that's part of what I love so much, what what I think I connect with so much in your work is, um, you know, I write a lot about my home region of Appalachia, and I write a lot about um, Appalachians' relationship to their land. Um, and, and part of yeah. what really fascinates me with that is this, um, you know, there's extraction is such a huge part of that. And so you have this deep reverence and this deep attachment to like just the physical place, but then you kind of are destroying it constantly at the same time. Right. Florida, that's the story of Florida too. Yeah. In a yeah lot of right. ways. I mean, Florida also, it's, it's interesting because it's like our entire industry, right? It's like fantasy is the industry of the state. Tourism is um, we're completely dependent on tourism. Totally. Where I grew up in Miami. And yet, that really has not made us the best stewards. <laughs> yeah. You know, the very nature that we, right. That like the, the Biscayne Bay, which is like this gorgeous, you know, famously aquamarine Bay right now, there are toxic blooms of macroalgae there, mm. you know, it's, it, there's all kinds of chemical runoff and, you know, sea level rise. So it's, it is, it's a, it's a really strange kind of a paradox, right. To be so, to be on the one hand, immerse the nature a way that you're aware of your total dependency mm-hmm. and um and then on the other hand you know sort of willfully in denial about that it's a, it's a strange thing yeah yeah i think for that for all of those reasons um the gondoliers was one of my favorites because i love how i love first of all how it goes like further than the 
it kind of imagines what comes after in a, in a way that is, it, it is exactly as you said, it's not treacle, it's not treacly, it's not um, sentimental, but it is, there is enough hope in it that you can kind of like hang in there. I hope a late, and I hope like a very, a very dark flavor of hope, because I also sort of found myself thinking that it's, it, it's hard for me to believe that we'll pivot in time to save this planet without a pretty violent transformation in the way we all live. And that's, you know, um, yeah, I don't, I I can't imagine it would be a comfortable transformation. No, no. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I loved that point of view, like a, of a, of a narrator who had not known anything different. I thought that was really a really clever way to approach it. Yeah. It's so funny. I was just reading on the train ride down here. That's like, to me, very inspiring piece about um, the Sunrise activists and the Green New Deal mm, mm-hmm. and the way that they're kind of, you know, changing the game, you know, re- reframing the conversation about climate change. And, um, yeah, how it's almost like this generational contest. It seems like some people are annoyed or angered by the fact that they're not incrementalists and they're demanding right. these, these, they're, you know, pushing such a, you know, what sounds to certain people like a very radical and idealistic and in some ways naive agenda but it it is this younger generation that's just saying oh we're going to imagine a a totally different way of doing things you're welcome right yeah (laughs) I mean just even like apart from climate change it's interesting to me I've I've been shifted on the grid a little bit where now I'm suddenly like staring down the barrel of middle you know and it, it it's it felt pretty abrupt I mean you're young for most of your life and then right and then Suddenly, you sort of find yourself in this new category, and I think from that vantage, I sort of understand. I feel like I, I feel like a little bit of a, um, like from where I'm positioned, I guess, on the calendar, I can kind of reflexively sympathize with with both. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I sort of understand this idea where it's like this is, you know, we've we've inherited the bones of the old world, but obviously, we're in no way obligated to that model, you know, and right. we can, um, we can sing some new world into being and why that might feel threatening <laughs> to the older generation. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. I wanted to ask you to, um, you know, yesterday, as it happens, uh, I just recorded an interview with Tommy Orange, um, and we were talking, oh, yeah, I know, it was such a great conversation, and we were talking about voice, and like, you know, he was talking about how he kind of was hesitant to go through an MFA program, because he felt like he might kind of come squeezed out the other side, like, you know, writing MFA, and, and, and your voice is also so distinctive. And I, I would, I was wondering if that was also something that you had thought about. Um, you know, obviously you went to Columbia and it turned out fine for you, but, but you know, where, where, where along the line did your voice kind of, did you feel, do you feel like you really came into your voice? You know, um, it's a funny thing. I was just thinking about this with, with my students too. 
I think also, and I, I've been thinking about this just in relation to future work, probably because I can get a little sick of my own voice. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Just sort of wanting to have, wanting, wanting to invite, you know, some new voices into the chorus. <laughs> um, I do think that that is like something that gets peddled in an MFA program a lot, where it's like, this is the place you come to discover your idiosyncratic voice and your mm-hmm. vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I absolutely think that the people that I met in my program, I mean, really it was the humans that I met in my program, I think, and some of the books that I was introduced to mm-hmm. more than anything else that mm-hmm. made that experience so valuable for me. I heard George Saunders say once, I really like this metaphor that he might have, he might have gotten there on his own, but it might have taken a decade and that mm-hmm. the MFA was just sort of like skating across a frozen pond. It accelerated something mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree. I mean, it did feel like this sort of <laughs> pressure cooker, you know, I don't even know what they're, I, I'm a very bad cook, so I'm sure there's a better domestic <laughs> analogy <laughs> what the MFA program is, but, you know, like a, some kind of star cradle, you know, but I, but I saw, I was so influenced by sort of these really weird, amazing things my peers were writing mm. that I it felt was liberating, liberating to me. Um, but I was writing really bizarre stuff. I mean, even in, as a kid and an undergrad, and I just didn't have much control, you know? Right, right. Um, and so I think one of the ways that the MFA speeds things along is, you know, not to use that echolocation metaphor again, but you're really training intensely in kind of listening to these echoes coming back to you from other very intelligent readers. Mm, mm-hmm. And so you're sort of learning how to like fly through the dark, you know, and navigate in the dark because you're internalizing all these coursing voices that are telling you, you know, this doesn't really make that much sense to us or here's where we felt the most energy or, you know, here's the question that seemed most alive to us. And so in a way that like, I, I can feel totally blind sometimes. Right. To the, the problems in a story or even the latent possibilities in the story. And you just, you start to kind of, um, develop this occult sensibility of how other readers are going to, what they're going to do with your words on the page. I, I love the idea. Of, I love thinking of it as an occult sensibility. Yeah, it is so, right? It is. It's, it's Yeah, it's like this like sixth <laughs> sense thing for sure. It's a really weird, and, and I, like I, somehow like that sort of sonar, right? If like, just like you throw your words out there and then you get these sort of, these echoes back and, and that helps to guide you. You're like, okay, well now I know a little bit more what to do with the revision. Um, and that was super, super valuable. Um, but I really do. I think it can be dangerous a little bit mm-hmm. to believe that you have to commit to to one voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know. And I, I say that only because I, I, I'm at a place right now where I've started to feel like a little bit claustrophobic sometimes. And I, I get like kind of, you know, how you can fall into. Even syntactically, you can fall oh, into sure. these sort of a bit like, oh, that's a Courtney sentence, all right, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think sometimes, too, market forces, unfortunately, will, like, infiltrate an MFA in, in, insofar as, like, some of my students feel like, well, they have to be, you know, refine their voices in a way that's, like, saleable, right? Or they have to, like, figure out some kind of persona that will help them to stand out or whatever. Does does working on a story collection help with that for you? Yes, it totally does. Even though then you, it turns out it's like it's like when you think if you move to California, maybe you'll be a, a totally new person and right. like rat, <laughs> <laughs> kind of locked into the architecture over here. Um, so a little, it's like my 
my, that's always my fantasy, you know, that, right. that, that, that geography is going to solve. Right. <laughs> and then I'll like, I won't crave anything that's bad for me. And I'll like, yeah, exercise right. all the time. And maybe, and maybe you'll, yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll be the kind of person that can wear hats or something all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> like, totally. <laughs> It's never, never been true for me at any, at any latitude in the world. But I keep wishing um, to be someone who could wear hats. Um, yeah, I, I think I love stories for that because, if nothing else, even if you're still sort of, you know, trotting your old preoccupations out, you know, you're you can look at them from new angles. Absolutely. Um, I really liked in this collection writing that black core food story because yeah. it felt like. Um, such a wild departure, actually. And in my first novel, I had this um, this this section that opened up called the Dredgeman's Revelation, uh-huh. and it yeah. was just like a, it was such a weird pleasure to me to write that because I really felt like it was a break from kind of the ordinary rhythms of my thought, you know. Yeah the the Black Corfu story definitely has that vibe of like that writer was having a lot of fun putting that together. Oh, I'm glad. That's because also, like, <laughs> if it's a real slog for you, it seems unrealistic to expect the reader to be like, wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Love turning the pages. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I think it definitely works in the other direction, too. And you can you can tell when things have been, like, overworked to death. Yes. Or, or, when, or when a writer is just, like, so weary, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like George Clooney and that. That gravity movie, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. look, I'm sorry. I've got to cut the cord and float away now. <laughs> like, over to you guys. <laughs> just make up your own ending. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Just, uh, yeah, they're like, this is a uh, be haunted or whatever. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go get a sandwich. <laughs> Another thing that I kept thinking of when I was reading this collection is uh, there's this there's this line that I really like in uh, How Fiction Works by James Wood, where he's talking about how he thinks the most important thing is like not necessarily how how real, um, like say real to life or something that a writer can can make it, but whether they've set up the rules correctly for how to read their work, how to read the piece, right. and like if they kind of get the internal logic solid and people know what's going on then they can kind of follow them everywhere and you do that so well and and I and I want to just talk about it in a really open-ended way because I'm sure it's not at least immediately the sort of thing that you're really conscious of but but maybe when you're editing is that is does that ever come into play like okay am I like is this kind of an airtight space that I'm creating airtight in a good way? Like, am I, am I leaving the reader like really confused about where we are, or how we are existing here? Right. Yeah. That's definitely always a concern, I think. And, you know, it's funny with speculative fiction in particular. Um, you know, it can, I think that was when I was a younger writer, that was also one of the greatest takeaways from workshop, which was if you are going to make an alteration to nature, you have to be absolutely rigorous about it. Mm. You know, I think that was, that's often a misconception. It's like, if you're going to write something fantastical or something supernatural, um, anything can happen. And then you end up with like a story with no consequences, you know, or not, right. nothing, it doesn't feel consequential because nothing real is at stake or you just, you know, it's sort of the, it was all a dream trap <laughs> where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. readers feel betrayed because like midway in the story the the rules shift on them again i think 
trying to find a way to keep the story surprising without violating its own laws or its own kind of internal logic is can be a real challenge if you're if you're sort of writing in in that sort of slippery zone where mm-hmm. <laughs> certain kinds of magic are possible. Um, you know, the Bob Girl story for me was a funny one because I really didn't want readers to get hung up on the fact that there's a way where if you were to do like a photorealistic version of that story, mm-hmm. I think it would just be pretty gross. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it would just, which is it just it simply wouldn't work if it was like expressionism, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it had to be kind of stylized in a way, and I had to like kind of work to find the right sort of tone and the right kind of omniscient mm-hmm. to let mm-hmm. readers off the hook of imagining too specifically mm-hmm. this bog body. And I think that can be the advice that students get sometimes, which is just you know the more concrete the better, um, the more specific the better. But for sure, there can be a, a very productive ambiguity that's mm-hmm. useful. Mm-hmm. This is this is an example from the way back, but I remember in uh, my graduate workshop, I had written this story about girls raised by wolves, and somebody was really pushing me to like describe them anatomically more specifically, mm-hmm. and it just didn't seem wise to me. You know, you, mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. really need people to worry about, you know, the belly button of a werewolf. Yeah, they, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That sounds like that's a ridiculous example, but I guess sometimes the kind of generality is productive or, or, or figuring out where a reader is going to stumble and finding some way to let them off the hook of being distracted by those questions. Right, right. A place where that really um, happened for me, and I think that I think that this is this happens throughout the collection in different ways, but but another way that to me as a reader that really succeeds is that the the character is the the character the narrator usually but you know the character in question is kind of is never like the twilight zone person with the pig face you know what i mean like everybody is kind of <laughs> in the world with them and like it really yeah. was a relief to me in in the title story orange world when she you know when ray confesses this this thing to the mom group and they all are familiar with it cuz it can then just become a much different kind of story i sort of love that moment too i think when we were talking about you know ways that you can try to make a surprise that feels satisfying mm-hmm, without, mm-hmm. I hope, I mean, I hope it reads that way, right? Without yeah. sort of feeling, making the reader feel totally betrayed, you know, like yeah. you, you gold them into thinking with one kind of story. Because I do sort of think like, I really wanted it to have this literal dimension. I mean, it, there was something so consoling to me when I was on that same threshold that this new mother, this mm-hmm. old new mother finds herself mm-hmm. You know, and it, it it happened. I was working on this story at this mo- this amazing moment where, you know, we were watching this tremendous worldwide thaw, and I mean, a lot of pain was surfacing too. Mm-hmm. But just that that seeing of echolocation, right? Just the idea that something that was the most private, nightmarish experience of somebody's life that they weren't alone with that. Yeah. Right. So I think that <laughs> there's probably a very very um, bad and sentimental way to. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I hope I mean I hope this story avoided you know but yeah, I but I yeah. but I did I did yeah I did actually want, want to try to find some way to talk about that very special solidarity that comes from sharing a nightmarish experience 
I would love to ask you just two more things. Um, one is to talk about sentences because I read an interview with you and I can't remember which one where you're like, I love to talk about sentences. I love to get really nitty gritty about craft, which I love to do on this show too. Um, and I think your sentences are tremendous. Like this is not a controversial opinion, but like your sentences are tremendous. And, and it's funny, the Bog Girl story, when I started reading it, I remembered reading it in The New Yorker when it came out. And then I was like, oh my God, it's got the toenail thing. And like the, 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 like blandly <laughs> ugly as a big toenail. Like I have remembered that for like oh, three years. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're my dream reader. <laughs> I just imagine there are people who are trying to forget that desperately. <laughs> no, but it's like, it's so perfect. And like in, in, um, Oh, it's the tornado auction, the the line about the girls' names being like as sweet and I can't remember that one exactly, but about sugar cubes and teacups. I mean, like, so just what, what, when you're kind of like just digging into a sentence, like what are you doing? What are you looking for? What are you correcting? Yeah. Um, I really think sound is the guide first for me. Um, and I, I do sort of feel like... Um, like I've developed a kind of faith that sound will lead you where you need to go. Mm -hmm. Um, and if, you know, if you're lucky and if you're listening carefully, the meaning will follow and just sort of like following the, following (laughs) the gleam of your own kind of instinct or imagination, which sounds really fun as I'm talking to you about it, but can feel (laughs) very dreadful. Of course. (laughs) In fact, you know, um, but get yeah, getting something. I I I read out loud a lot when I write. Um, I also think, you know, that was something that workshop was helpful with, and that my professors were helpful with, is figuring out sort of when something tips into incoherence. Mm, mm-hmm. I think a real challenge for me, you know, my brain will supply me with like fifty alternative metaphors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like I have this problem a, too. A zoo of metaphors, and I, you know, figuring out like which one is clarifying something, you know, because sometimes I'll, I'll be so in love with the sound of something that it's, I, I won't realize it's actually obfuscating mm-hmm. the meaning. And that is just, I need readers sometimes to tell me that too. Right. Or, or something I'll get a little Baroque, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like, um, remember that plane that Howard Hughes built that just like <laughs> six inches and then crashed again. Right, right. So I think that can happen to sentences, unfortunately, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm always impressed by people who can scaffold these like virtuosic long sentences, you know, like yeah. page length sentences. Um, I love Virginia Woolf. I feel like she, and it's so beautiful what she's doing. She's writing to such a rhythm. Yeah. And, and you never sort of, you never fall off the horse, right? I mean, you're, <laughs> it's something about her rhythm that they, they, the sentences become just these incredible choreographies and your mind can perform them. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's, it's amazing. So I think even, you know, uh, when we were talking about wanting to get away from your own voice, what I'm really like, uh, that's yeah. <laughs> this old, this old saw, sometimes I'll copy out passages. I did that for that Madame Bovary story, just to kind of like try to invite those rhythms into my bloodstream. Cause they're not, you know, my natural lines at all. And yeah. I, that's actually, you know, if nothing else is working, sometimes copying out like a paragraph of Marquez, or Ann Carson, or, you know, yeah, just just a writer you admire who 
maybe puts puts a different kind of spin on the ball. I think that can be really helpful. Totally. But totally. reading out loud for sure, right? You hear right. You, I, even even today, I, you know, I was just doing a reading and I wanted to revise something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, the last question I want to ask you is um, something I always like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Oh, what does creative satisfaction look like? Let me think about this for a second. All right. So I have a two-year-old at home and this new baby on the way. So I feel like um, I have had to make my peace with <laughs> writing at a much slower pace than ever before. Yeah. In part because I feel like my mind is a fog machine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it feels like a really bad music video in there. <laughs> just just the thriller myths are <laughs> have, have kind of uh, made it more difficult for me to, yeah, just access language. And that's just that's just where I find myself. So creative satisfaction, if I can get an hour or two of really solid focused time inside a draft, even if at the end of that time, you know, not that much has changed, but if I can just, just live inside a draft for an hour or two, I feel really satisfied. If I am, um, if I get the chance to read for total pleasure, I will tell you one of the, I, I miss my family a lot. But I was at the airport and I picked up Tyree Jones in American Marriage. Mm. And I just, I just, you know, I I read the way there, and it, it was for no reason, right? It wasn't, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to write anything about it. Nobody really needs me to evangelize for that book. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think the word, I think the secret's out that it's great, you know? Yeah. Um, And I just loved it. And I just, yeah, sat in, in the bizarre limbo, you know, between like Auntie Anne's pretzels and <laughs> all the departing flights. And I was so, so happy with like the very old school, just pure reader pleasure for no other reason than that I, I wanted to know those characters. Um, so that's also very satisfying to me. I think on those rare instances that feel almost adulterous, yeah. there is, I'm sure you must feel the same way, right? There's totally. Because if I'm not reading for the show, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and it didn't, it, you know what I mean? It, right. Or there's something you're working on something. You're like, I should be researching. Right. I should read something that feeds this thing. And I was totally. like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> for, for just my own pleasure. <laughs> and so that's, I find that deeply satisfying. It's, it's a pretty rare experience now, you know? Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a total delight and I appreciate it under your stressful physical and and schedule circumstances. Um oh, you taking no. the this, time. This interview was very creatively satisfying. I I love those questions. Oh, it was good. really fun to talk to you, Courtney. That makes me really happy. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.